welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. It's Yochi, here with Zach and friend of show Lauren Schulman, co-host of the podcast Bombshell, a fellow at a large DC think tank called the Center for New American Security, a former senior Pentagon official during the Obama years, and like Zach, someone who is rather sick this morning. So we're going to be talking this but week. But otherwise but, much more impressive than me. Oh, well, yeah, I, I didn't no get a concussion idea. playing flag football. So. <laughs> Concussions aside. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking this week about two events that took place in two very different parts of the world that raise one very painful question about President Trump. The first one took place during Trump's visit this week to Beijing, where he said this about the increasingly authoritarian Chinese president Xi Jinping. My feeling toward you is an incredibly warm one. As we said, there's great chemistry. The second one took place 7,000 miles away here in Washington, where there are signs Republicans are pushing to actually try to prosecute Hillary Clinton, something Trump kind of infamously called for during a debate more than a year ago. It's just awfully good that someone with the temperament of Donald Trump is not in charge of the law in our country. Because you'd be in jail. Yeah. So you take the two of these together, and there's one big question, which we'll talk about today. Does the president of the world's most powerful democracy actually believe in democracy? I spoke to an expert uh, at Barnard earlier this year uh, on democracy. Uh, Her name is Sherry Berman. And the way that she put it to me, I think it sort of always stuck with me, which is that Trump has authoritarian instincts and in a way that is kind of natural in the business world. When you're the CEO of a company, you don't let your subordinates disagree with you when you have a strong view. You fire people who try to undermine you and challenge you and argue with you. But when you're leading a government, that's completely different, right? You can't just fire everyone who disagrees with you. The point in a democracy is that you work with different people. Uh, So porting over the way that one thinks about business into the political realm, it it doesn't work very well. And since the president doesn't have a developed political ideology in the sense of being like, you know, an ideological fascist or an ideological Democrat. He just applies the same way of thinking that he has in the private sector to the public realm. And that often makes him very comfortable with things that we would define as authoritarian. And so let's actually talk about Asia. And Lauren, maybe you could mm-hmm. you could handle this. Let's talk about what he did talk about and then in some ways, much more importantly, what he didn't talk about. So this was a big trip to Asia. It was one of the longest presidential trips to Asia since uh, George H.W. Bush went on the trip where he infamously got extremely sick all over the Japanese prime minister. Um, The president went all over uh, Japan, uh, South Korea, Beijing, Vietnam, and the Philippines. uh, And he notably talked a lot about trade. He notably talked a lot about, you know, being the wonderful welcome that he was receiving from Beijing, Japan, South Korea, and others. Uh, He did not at any point in time talk about human rights issues. And this is something that, think about why we send the president overseas at all. It's not just because it's a nice vacation. It's not because you get the red carpet rolled out for you. You do it to deliver messages that only the president can deliver and to close deals that only he can close. So it's not clear to me that he really did either of those things while on this trip. When he was in Beijing, he said nothing about, you know, political prisoners, human rights abuses, uh, abuses against journalists. Similarly, when he met with uh, Duterte in the Philippines, um, he said nothing at all while in Southeast Asia on anything that's going on in Burma with the Rohingya who are being, uh, 600,000 of them have uh, fled the country to Bangladesh. And this is not at all comparable to how President Obama and and all of President Trump's predecessors managed their travel. They used these sorts of trips to make really clear messages, both in private, but much more importantly in public, about what was important to the United States in terms of its own ideals. What was striking was, let's talk about for a second, Duterte in the Philippines, because this may be a leader that a lot of people don't know much about, Rodrigo Duterte. And what he's doing that's kind of horrifying is he's launched this brutal campaign against drugs in his own country, where you've had well over 6,000 people killed in the streets, often by people who are thought to be parts of the Philippine security services operating just in plain clothes. This has been condemned by the Catholic Church. It's been condemned by Obama. Duterte told him, you're a son of a whore, go to hell. So this has been condemned by a previous U.S. president, but Trump was silent. Well, not just silent. Uh, Earlier, he called Duterte and gave him a message of support, saying essentially encouraging him. Right, you're doing a great job. Yeah, right. Fighting your epidemic of drugs, which, by the way, the Philippines doesn't actually have a terrible drug problem in international context. Uh, This is 
a pretty naked way of Duterte on his part cementing political control. He is an elected leader, but he's quite popular by inventing the specter of a drug apocalypse in his country and then murdering a bunch of people and claiming that he has successfully ended the threat of the drug apocalypse. It's very clever, but extremely and disturbingly authoritarian for, for one of the world's largest countries. And this is something where, I mean, the United States does not have a perfect history of always condemning all human rights abuses by all of our friends or even some of our enemies. But this is something where the president actually seems to not only tolerate, but really admire how Duterte is handling this crisis and openly saying so in a way that is incredibly discouraging to anybody who is looking for him to condemn even in like the mildest terms that these crimes by Duterte and others in the region. Uh, and that's, I mean, what's that sort of a fascinating part of how Trump perceives American greatness? He says, make America great again. But he doesn't say that on the basis of our ideals or our respect for human rights or democracy. He says it based on America is great because we feel awesome about ourselves, not because we're spreading a you know, kind of soft power message about ourselves to the world. I think it's also really striking that foreign leaders in the past would spend huge amounts of time and money trying to figure out an American leader. And now they figured out Trump really quickly. You roll out the red carpet, literally, as big a red carpet as you can, as China did with this state visit plus. It's a private tour of the Forbidden City, but they give him all the pomp. And then you sort of actually get from him what you want. You know, you give him what he wants, which is really this kind of facile uh, public ad adulation. But then you get back the things that you want, which is a free hand. And I, I want to just drill into the Asia trip a little bit because human rights can be, it can sound kind of amorphous as a concept, but it's really tangible right now in Asia, things you could have talked about. So in China, Xi Jinping has launched this extraordinarily broad crackdown within his own country on dissent. He's made it even harder to access news sites. That's gotten much, much, much worse just in the last months. Duterte, as we talked about, 6,000 people dead. And I want to talk again about the Rohingya in Myanmar, where you've had 600,000 flee. So it's basically two-thirds of this population of ethnic Muslims who are being driven out by the military of Myanmar. This, again, is a country led by Aung San Suu Kyi, a Nobel Prize winner, who has done and said pretty much nothing. There is a question in Washington of whether there should be sanctions put onto Myanmar to try to stop this. And you had Rex Tillerson, Mr. Charisma, our current Secretary of State for God knows how much longer, say the following. You can't will a crisis to end. You can't just uh, pass a law and say, therefore, the crisis is over. You can't just impose sanctions and say, therefore, the crisis is over. So, Lauren, what does it mean, do you think, when you have a president who not only, as you were talking about, isn't necessarily professing uh, American ideals, but who, like, in a really tangible way, is not doing very much. At that point, we are effectively giving away any leverage we have in any of these human rights crises uh, by saying that not only do we consider them to be something worth raising when we send the president or his representatives overseas, or by just completely giving up any potential of uh, using some of our key tools like sanctions and other things to do anything about it. At that point, why would Burma or the Philippines or China decide to change any of their behavior? Even if the president, which it doesn't appear that he is, says something about this behind closed doors, nobody knows about that. That means that nobody else, no other countries then have leverage to say the United States is going to make this a priority and we are too. No civil society organizations are going to do that. And that, that was actually also a distinction between how Obama, Bush, and others handled their overseas travel, that you know, President Obama notably met with civil society organizations in a lot of countries and gave them his own personal support. President Trump did nothing of the kind, uh, you know, notably when he was in Russia, where we always do that, but also on this trip, spent a lot of his time you know, do, going on fabulous tours, but not necessarily engaging with the publics who these policies are impacting. The question of American influence when it comes to human rights abuses abroad is interesting and quite subtle, actually. Um, you know, back in 2009, when Iran was cracking down on its dissent movement, a lot of people were like, America needs to condemn the crackdown and stand with the protesters. And like, in that case, because the Iranian government was fighting for its survival— it probably wouldn't have made a difference and arguably could have undermined the protests. But in other cases, when the human rights abuses aren't as central to the regime's survival, perceptions of American influence or support can make a great deal of, in of difference because they shift the regime's calculus, whatever the regime in question is. If they feel like trade ties that are more valuable to them than whatever the objective trying to be accomplished by the crackdown might be, a might be at stake, 
sometimes they might change their minds. If they feel like they might lose security concessions from the United States, military aid or some kind of military-to-military cooperation, counterterrorism funding, all sorts of different things that they want, they might change their policy in response to American pressure. And you can see things like that in cases like China, the Philippines— Burma, all of these are countries where the U.S. actually has a great deal of influence and, and real ties with those places. And there's just nothing. And just to put a final point on that, as compared to the end of the Obama administration, when, as you pointed out, Duterte was very critical of uh, President Obama, yeah, Duterte and others clearly like Trump. They clearly would listen if he said something, and he has leverage over them in ways that I think that prior administrations did not always, or at least they want to give the appearance of such. It's not clear to me that the president used any of that goodwill to get anything done on this trip, human rights or anything else. Although, I don't know, there's this amazing quote from Duterte last year when people were asking about comparing him to Trump, and his response more or less, was Trump isn't like me. I'm not racist. Yow. I mean, th- th- there's something we've, Zach and I and Jen, when she's here, we've joked about in the newsroom in the kind of like ha-ha sob category, which is when people compare a leader of another country and say that it's that country's Trump, in a weird way, it's often an insult to that person because like Marine Le Pen, racist, nationalist, bigoted, but she has a coherent policy that she can speak through somewhat articulately some of the leaders in Duterte in the Philippines. These leaders can actually articulate something clearly, even if it's very scary. Trump does the scary part, but also doesn't do the articulated clearly part. But Zach, I want to come to a point you made because I think it's really interesting and important. You know, you were talking about the example of Iran where the U.S. was kind of silent and was criticized for it. But there's another example of it happening where there was an interesting drawback, which was Egypt. And if we think back to like the initial uprising in the streets against Hosni Mubarak in Tahrir Square that led to his toppling, The U.S. was criticized then for having not condemned Mubarak, not having tried to push him out. Then they later did try to push him out, but meanwhile, they'd alienated almost everyone. And I flag that because there's a drawback to this. Like, There's not just the loss of American ideals and moral standing. It's at some point in these countries, there's often a rebellion of some sort against the leaders who are abusive. And if you, the U.S., were seen as having aided and abetted that abusive leader, at some point, that comes back to you. Well, the Philippines is a democracy, right? It's a country where... Duterte, assuming he doesn't try some kind of push, which wouldn't be unprecedented in Philippine history, but would be unlikely, uh, that's a place where there will be another leader. And maybe that leader might not be so comfortable with his predecessors or her predecessors mass murdering. And that's that's the kind of relationship that you need to build with oppositions, especially in countries like that. It, again, it's not happening. It's just on all sorts of different levels cozying up to authoritarians without any clear aim or without any clear quid pro quo, it doesn't make a lot of strategic sense even setting aside the moral imperative of of dealing with things like government-sponsored murder campaigns. Lauren, you made that really good point a moment ago about how it doesn't seem like we've gotten anything despite the kowtowing. Let's flip that. Like, What could he have gotten, do you think, had he taken a different path? Part of the problem is over the last year, even during the campaign, President Trump doesn't have a lot of ground to stand on in terms of his own support for human rights issues. I mean, he talked about during the campaign waterboarding, killing the families of terrorists. He hasn't exactly been, you know, a shining light for human rights issues. This could have been, this was would have easily been a moment where even just a stray line in a you know, press conference or something else would have been a notable shift from the president, an indicator that he has not completely given up uh, prioritizing the p- potential for prioritizing human rights issues uh, in any of his foreign policy. I don't necessarily know that they would have had some massive change in policy, but it may have at least opened up the window for later on if there were some terrible event in the Philippines or if the things continue to get worse in China or continue to manifest in Burma, that the president could intervene and have any credibility in doing so. Right now, I mean, if the, I think if the president said anything publicly, we would all sort of look at him and say, what's going on here? As opposed to, yes, this is a consistent foreign policy and the president is going to back it up with some kind of credible use of American power, sanctions or otherwise. I want to bring this conversation back to the premise of seeing Trump as an authoritarian, which seems to be at the root of all of the different problems that we're describing. It's really easy for that to sound like facile Trump bashing, like you don't like the president and so you're going to call him an authoritarian. 
I don't think that's right in this case. Because I don't mean authoritarian in a purely derogatory sense. I mean it in an analytic sense. Right? It's a question of how do we understand and interpret a set of behaviors? And what does it mean when a president has instincts that can fairly be described as authoritarian? Right? And, and the undercurrent of the conversation we're having right now is one thing that that means is a level of comfort with human rights abuses and a disinterest in promoting human rights abroad. And uh, another one is uh, a failure to understand what it means to be leading an international coalition of democracies. Because we don't talk about this a lot, but that more or less is America's foreign policy stance, right? In every region, sans maybe the Middle East, uh, we've aligned ourselves overwhelmingly with democratic states and built institutions that knit together countries on the basis of a set of shared values. And if you don't have that and you're not exercising that kind of leadership, what does it mean for the United States? I, I mean, I would push back on that in the sense that there is obviously the school, the realist school of foreign policy that has been dominant at various times in the last 50 years, but where it was emphatically not caring particularly about a country's internal governance or human rights abuses because of a belief that stability trumps all. And because of a belief that you can get something tangible and important from those countries, so whether it's the Middle East, whether it's Africa, whether it's Latin America, we've had relationships with countries that were terrible. We've given them money, aid, training, in some cases, direct military support no, no, for wait, quite no, no, some no. time. It's, it's not about relationships. It's about the nature of the global order the United States presides over, right? It's one thing to say you have bilateral ties with Saudi Arabia. It's another thing to say the foundations of American foreign policy, alliances like NATO, the protectorates with Japan and South Korea. Like these are the things that define America's approach to the entire region and, and arguably the world, right? They're the glue which allows the US to deploy troops abroad so quickly, having bases in Germany and Japan and places like that, right? And and that's really what lets the US exercise its global leadership role. Without that, it wouldn't work. And that really is a set of democratic alliances. Well, think about what uh, the president also abstended himself from while on this trip, trade. TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, is no more. Uh, but it, you saw on this trip the uh, countries that were originally part of that deal with the United States said, you know, if the United States doesn't want to play, why don't we just do this? You also saw China at the same time strengthening, strengthening its economic ties with a lot of the Southeast Asia, East Asia nations. So we, you know, if you had, if the president had thought that if I don't bother folks on human rights, if I, you know, say how much I like them and they will out the red carpet for me, I will get better trade deals. That doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. Um, if only because if the president thinks that he's going to conduct bilateral trade negotiations with all of these countries, why would they necessarily want to do that well with us? Why does the president think that he's going to be successful at that because he's such a great negotiator? Um, and do we think that the United States is actually going to prioritize and put the serious effort into all of those individual deals rather than the deal that we just walked away from? I mean, there's that cliche that often holds true where a person who wants to be perceived as the alpha male or the alpha female actually isn't and can be played and bullied pretty quickly. And I think that's what's happening in China. The Times had a piece about how no American president had ever been as deferential to China as Trump was when he was there. So, you know, Lauren, to your point, he wasn't trying to negotiate a better deal. He wasn't trying to get much for U.S. companies, things they didn't already have. He basically said to China, what you're doing in the South China Sea and the East China Sea, we're not going to do very much about it. We don't care what you're doing in things that threaten our allies. We don't care that you're doing pretty much nothing with North Korea. So it's interesting to me that he's abandoning, you know, Zach, to your point about kind of moral standing, but also, as you were saying, the relationships that have helped kind of undergird American security in many ways for a long time. He's not talking about human rights. He's not talking about the substantive stuff. And we could maybe set all of that aside if he was getting back something big, right? Like if Trump did this trip, did none of those things, but came back with a trillion dollars of new business for American companies and South China, the South China Sea issue being resolved and North Korea getting serious pressure from China, you know, you'd say, okay, that wasn't great what he didn't say, but he came back with something good but he didn't. It's like uh, Henry Kissinger, only instead of there being an opening to China and naked support for genocide, there's just naked support for genocide. The, the anti-Kissinger hot take comes Oh, Henry Kissinger deserves to be in jail. I, and I've said this before, and I want it on the record as clearly and as loudly as I can say. The man is an international war criminal who has masterminded the slaughter of thousands of innocent people. And the fact that he is in good standing in D.C. is a disgrace. Oof. <laughs> but since you have so gracefully 
brought us back to our beloved hometown of DC. The other thing happened this week that has been really kind of striking was, and it gets also to another part of the authoritarian tendency Trump has, because you would normally see this in a country that is not ours, was you see for the first time Republicans tangibly trying to do something that Trump called for during the campaign, which was investigate Hillary Clinton, prosecute Hillary Clinton, maybe throw her in jail. And it's troubling because this is something you see in a banana republic, and it's troubling to actually hear what it sounds like when elected Republican members of Congress say things like this. Well, we know one fact. We know the Clinton campaign, the Democrat National Committee paid for, uh, through the law firm, paid for the dossier. We know that happened. And it sure looks like the FBI was paying the author of that document. Doesn't that warrant naming a second special counsel, as 20 members of this committee wrote you three and a half months ago, asking you to do? So, Zach, you've written about how this is literally something from a banana republic. Like, talk that through. Like, why is this such a weird and scary change of events? And just why is it so bad? In a democracy, one of the basic principles of how things operate is that when you win an election, the other party is allowed to continue to exist and continue to operate as an opposition. It's the number one democracy principle, right, is free and fair elections, political competition that is open and without the fear of political retaliation. What happens in what's called mixed systems or uh, pseudo-authoritarian systems, competitive authoritarianism is the political science term, is that when the the ruling party wins an election, uh, the election, first of all, isn't usually fair to begin with. And then afterwards, they retaliate against the other party. They throw its leaders in jail. They limit the ability of friendly media outlets to them to reach audiences. They do things to make sure that that party could never compete against them again. We shouldn't have to think about things like that in the United States. We shouldn't even be having a conversation about a comparison between those two things. But the idea that Hillary Clinton, who was the leader of the Democratic Party in the last election, could be thrown in jail, that is eerily reminiscent of something that Vladimir Putin would do to undermine the Russian opposition. It's also another kind of piece of it. If you think about like a table that keeps up a relatively stable democracy, the media being part of it, you also have this extraordinary, constant, unending fake news, fake news, fake news, fake news. Listen, journalists get it wrong. We all get it wrong. And like no one in our industry would say that our industry is perfect or free of kind of biases here and there. But just to like relentlessly argue that a free press shouldn't be a free press. I mean, a story this week that didn't get a huge amount of attention given Roy Moore possibly hitting on 14-year-olds was a giant multi-billion dollar merger being derailed because the Justice Department wants the companies to get rid of CNN. And that was seen universally as Donald Trump hating CNN and now in a tangible way punishing CNN, its employees, the shareholders of its parent company, because he doesn't like their political coverage. That's also something you would see in Russia and that you would never have imagined seeing here. You know, Lauren, you've obviously, unlike me and Zach, you've served in government. It seems to us on the outside, I wonder if this seems true to you and having been on the inside, that this would have been just like unimaginable in the Obama years, the Bush years, on, on, on. Not only unimaginable within the administration, but also there would be an expectation that Congress would reach out and say, what on earth are you doing? And that to me was actually one of the more disturbing elements this week, that I mean, the president himself, an element of the campaign was lock her up, lock her up. We heard that over and over again. It's sad, but true that I have just sort of, uh, you know, tuned out anytime the president makes any insinuation that Hillary Clinton or anyone associated with her campaign needs to be investigated or locked up. The fact that Congress seems to be encouraging this, or at least encouraging the Justice Department to ask questions about it, is horrifying. Like that's, they may be giving some strange bureaucratic cover to doing something the president wants them to do without actually really, really pursuing it. And I think that can be discussed further. But this is something that we would want Congress to come back and say, this is inappropriate. This is wrong. You need to stop this now. And the absence of them doing so, I think to Zach's point earlier, it's having the president do this, it makes us a banana republic in waiting. I think having Congress encourage it, enable it, allow it, it makes us a banana republic more or less version 1.0. I think that that's a really important point because what we saw this week is a little bit subtle, right? It was there was a letter from the Justice Department in response to Representative Bud Goodlatte, the uh, chair of the Judiciary Committee, who was pushing for an investigation into Clinton, saying, uh, 
you know, maybe we'll think about a special prosecutor for Clinton. But so that's, let's, that wasn't the let's point. just unpack for a second the letter from Goodlatte. Like, yeah. let, let's just unpack what it is he wanted them to investigate. Right. He So he wants an investigation to this Uranium One scandal, which was the approval of the sale of a Canadian uranium company that uh, extracted U.S. uranium to a Russian corporation during the Obama administration. This was all above board, but conservative media has convinced itself this was Hillary Clinton giving away all of America's nuclear weapons to Vladimir Putin because they need a competitive Russia scandal to match Trump's. Not not, not like a real thing, okay. But it, there's a lot of media, conservative media pressure for people like Goodlatte to emphasize this. So he sends a letter to the Justice Department that says, you all need to start looking into Hillary Clinton. I want a special prosecutor. Of course, because they need a Russia special prosecutor to match the actual Russia special prosecutor. Then the Justice Department writes back this letter that said that they were considering the idea, but if you read between the lines and you talk to legal experts about it, they say, this is the Justice Department saying, we'll get back to you on the 12th of never. That was an exact quote from Steve Laddick, a law professor at the University of Texas, when I talked to him about this. Uh, and so the professional bureaucracy, to Lauren's point earlier, understands how crazy this all is and how scary the idea of investigating Hillary Clinton on trumped-up charges are. But Congress is pressuring the Justice Department to do it, as is the president. And so the fear isn't that the professional people who oppose this kind of thing and see why it's scary would do it. It's that the president might force Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who isn't the, you know, the best apple in the bunch on the best day, uh, in, into doing something that, that's truly terrifying. I want to push back a little bit on the, the notion that the Department of Justice is 100% just saying, you know, F you, Congress, we're going to do it. This isn't appropriate. We're not going to do this. Parenthetically, you can just say, fuck you okay. on the show. If we just, <laughs> we've got an explicit warning. Go crazy. Got it. Um, because I think their intent it was exactly what Zach explained to be able to say that, like, no, we're not going to do this. But the fact that the question is even being asked, the fact that staff time is being dedicated to this, I mean, bureaucracy does its thing. They, The fact that people are looking into this at all is going to open up maybe a tiny can of worms. The fact that they're going to have to give more information to Congress at a later point or to uh, Attorney General Sessions is going to open up a slightly larger can of worms. At some point in time, somebody may or may not find something that merits some tiny investigation, doesn't really merit any of the attention that we've given to this issue over the past several years, but is going to continue on a path of serious inappropriateness of in investigating a political opponent within the Department of Justice. Like, I don't think that's their real intent, but I think that just even exploring the question is doing enormous damage already. And, and there, it sort of leads to like two things happening simultaneously, both which are really jarring. You know, Lauren, to your point, Congress is not only like not trying to stop this, they are the ones like fueling this, like kind of as aggressively as they can, literally taking talking points from Fox News. Elvin Chang, who's a really talented member of the uh, Vox.com staff, has a piece up on the site that sort of visually shows the Iranian One scandal and how just like ludicrous it is. But they're taking like talking points from the fringe of the conservative media, putting it into letters, getting the Justice Department, as you say, to have to respond. The other weird thing is like Keebler Elf Jeff Sessions who is hammered on pretty much everything he's done, except for the thing Trump hates him for, which is the right thing he did about recusing himself on Russia probes, arguably here has said and done the right thing as well when he said things like this on Capitol Hill this week. The Department of Justice can never be used to retaliate politically against opponents, and that would be wrong. And just it's interesting that Sessions, who is so widely criticized, at least here, you know, Zach, to your point before about maybe this is just buying time, at least here may actually in his own weird way be doing the right thing. Well, Jeff Sessions is awful on um, other dimensions of democracy, which he may not recognize as such, specifically uh, minority inclusion in politics. If you looked at um, gerrymandering in the United States and the crackdown on voting rights um, through voter ID laws, and you looked at that happening in another country, you would sure think that this is an attempt by a majority group to disenfranchise a minority group. Uh, but Sessions was a senator. Uh, he came up through the American political system, and he understands the basic norms that underpin it. And that is is what is so troubling about this stuff in conjunction with the Asia trip. I mean, we're an international show. We don't want to focus just on what's happening when it comes to the Justice Department. When you take this as a package and you put it all together, what you have is uh, what Harvard political scientist Yasha Mount calls democratic deconsolidation. You have a weakening of the parts of the system that commit the United States to the basic practices of democracy. And you have this happening across the board. 
You have the U.S. delinking itself from international commitments to human rights and to uphold human rights standards. And you have, at home, backsliding on a number of different metrics that one might use to assess the health and well-functioning of a democracy. And you put all that together, and it's a really worrying sign for what is historically, you know, the country that, with a, you know, Henry Kissinger's aside, has most prominently stood for human rights and democracy across the world. I mean, I hate to take a, a really hard topic and reduce it to a yes-no question, but I'm going to. We began with sort of the question of, do you have an American president who doesn't believe in democracy? Or phrase a different way, an American president who is an authoritarian or has authoritarian tendencies. And I'm curious as we wrap the segment, you know, Lauren, maybe let's just start with you, but yes or no? What, what do you think? Where do you come down on that? Yes, we have a president with authoritarian tendencies. We have a president that I don't think has even any rem- slightest, slightest clue about what democracy truly is and why we care about it in the United States. I think he th- sees this as a, you know, fun couple of years to live in a big mansion, to go on big fancy trips, to have people say good things about him. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I said this at the beginning of the episode, and I still think it's true. Trump is an authoritarian, but he's not, again, and I want to emphasize, an ideological authoritarian. When in the 20th century, you had a lot of movements, most notably Soviet communism, that believed as a matter of principle that power needed to be consolidated in the hands of uh, a small number of people with no checks. Trump doesn't have a worked-out political philosophy like the fascists did. They believed that there were reasons why, deep philosophical reasons, why power needed to be in the hands of certain kinds of people. And, And so did Stalinists and Maoists. Trump just hates the idea that people oppose him and just wants to do some stuff and hates the fake news media and does things that have the effect of undermining American democracy and undermining international human rights protections not intentionally, and and a lot of authoritarians don't start out who, in countries that began as democracies doing these things intentionally with a secret plan. It just is a number of little things that add up over the course of time to fraying, degrading, and in the worst potential case, detonating the system that underpins popular rule. Every year, millions of people get the least liked gift of all time, underwear. But we still give it to our family and our friends, even if they don't want it. But maybe it's not the underwear that's the problem. Maybe it's the kind of underwear. So let me tell you about MeUndies, the only underwear that makes for an amazing gift and, in all honesty, a favorite of the Vox.com newsroom. Most of us wear MeUndies, which may be an image you don't want, but you should know. It has a soft, flexible waistband. It's three times softer than cotton. It's natural, sustainably sourced fiber, so it's not artificial. And what they do is make underwear that's the perfect gift that everyone's going to love you for. Also, while you're buying some for friends, buy some for yourself. It's that good. So this year, don't give underwear, give MeUndies. And this holiday season, MeUndies is making it easier and cheaper than ever before. You can get 20% off the softest underwear and socks you'll ever wear, free shipping, 100% satisfaction guarantee, and here's how you do it. Go to MeUndies.com worldly. MeUndies.com slash worldly. One last time, MeUndies.com slash worldly. A strange confession. When I'm at the gym running or doing any other kind of exercise, I've got a magazine with me because it's the best time to read and frankly, as a parent, sometimes the only time to read. And here's a great way to get all the magazines you read in one place, and that's using Texture. The Texture app gives you unlimited access to over 200 premium magazines including ones that I personally read almost every week or month, Time, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, Wired, Vogue, National Geographic. And right now, you can try Texture for free. Just imagine having your favorite magazines and their back issues anytime, anywhere. If you're walking to work, if you're on the commute to work, if you're walking your dog, you've got them with you. So you can get a free trial if you go to texture.com backslash worldly. And then if you choose to continue, it's just $9.99 a month. It's 30% off their listed price. There are also great gift options available for the holiday season if you know people who want to read, may like to read great magazines, and may want to do it as a gift. So go to texture.com backslash worldly to start the free trial today. Again, texture.com backslash worldly. So for Elsewhere this week, we're going to look at something in a very different part of the world that is possibly the weirdest story of the last week, month, and frankly, maybe this year. 
U.S. officials confirming that the military is now looking into allegations that two Navy SEALs may have killed a Green Beret. It happened back in June in the West African country of Mali. So let's just listen and think about that again. Navy SEALs, so the most elite of the elite of the elite, the people who rescued Captain Phillips in the movie about him being freed from Somali pirates, the people that took down Osama bin Laden, the ones who in pop culture are like the best of the best of the best, the heroic of the heroic, may have murdered an American special forces soldier. It's just sort of mind-boggling. And I think we should look at sort of two questions as we start. One, and Zach, maybe you can grab this one, is sort of what happened. And then, Lauren, maybe you could grab this one of what were they doing in Mali in the first place? But Zach, like walk through this bizarre murder case. So from what I understand, and obviously we're still in the initial stages of the inquiry, uh, so it's not everything is clear. It seems like the Navy SEALs were engaged in some kind of um, for-profit scheme, illicit money acquiring somehow. Illicit for-profit scheme sounds mm. so benign, but <laughs> but I, well, I admire it. I admire the, your understatement. About embezzlement this, uh, from the U.S. government. Thank you. Sure. Well, I'm glad someone's willing to state it forthrightly. See, we'll make a real ex-government person of you yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're embezzling money, and they're doing it while they're on a counterterrorism mission in Mali. And this Green Beret, who is also there, finds out, and they kill him. And then they initially try to cover it up and make it look like the guy died of natural causes, but it's very clear that he died of, I believe, asphyxiation. Uh, and now the NCIS, not Mark Harmon, the actual NCIS, uh, is investigating. And it really does seem like a lot of this, the reporting, the top-notch stuff has been done by Spencer Ackerman at the Daily Beast, who gets credit for initially breaking the embezzlement part of the story. And uh, it really seems like a crime committed by some of the least accountable people in the U.S. military designed to cover up some behavior that they really should be held accountable for. So in terms of what they were doing there, and this is also still emerging because a lot of what uh, the Navy SEAL, SEAL Team 6, as they're colloquially called in Special Forces, is classified. Um so the the SEALs that were there were ostensibly participating in some sort of secret counterterrorism mission related to, but not exactly the same as what we talked about a few weeks ago when we were discussing Niger. The Special Forces soldier, um, Sergeant Melgar, was not on the exact same mission. He was doing a, as far as we understand, um, he was doing some work with the embassy Uh, more related to intelligence, but also doing, I believe, some training of troops in Mali as well. But they were staying together in the same kind of housing complex nearby the embassy compound. So this all matters to some degree to the extent that what they were actually doing in Mali is how classified it is and how relevant it is to the actual uh, murder that took place itself. What you know, were they were the seals if they did kill kill Sergeant Melgar um, did that actually result from Sergeant Melgar finding out about the embezzlement, or was it as some sort of personal slight that would frankly not have any kind of classification you know, rationale for, for somebody for this to be a really secret thing? But regardless, this is a fairly secret community, both the special forces as well as the Navy SEALs, or at least it's supposed to be a very secret community. Um, the fact that we hadn't really heard anything about this until the last few weeks or so when the when the murder itself took place in June is pretty bizarre in my mind. Um, that It was only in September when I believe uh, the Army and Special Investigative Service turned it over to NCIS to say that we think this wasn't of natural causes. This was actually a murder that took place. Therefore, you, Navy, are, are, should be in charge because the people of interest are SEALs in this case and you should be taking over this investigation. That was in September, and we still haven't had a lot of details emerge in public. And I think a lot of people will naturally turn to, that's because it was just a secret mission. That's because these are SEALs and they protect their own. That's actually not terribly uncommon for as investigations uh, continue for them to be kind of, um, I guess, a little more secret in the military field. But I think there's a lot of suspicion about what exactly it is that's going on in the situation. And, and until the Department of Defense is a little more forthcoming, people will probably assume a lot of the worst. These are the Navy SEALs. And, and you know, when, when this happened, there's like the immediate callback to like a few good men, right? There's the right. immediate callback to Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise yelling at each other in a courtroom. <laughs> but there's a difference. I mean, not on the human tragedy of it. Like the idea, obviously, of course, one's fiction and one's nonfiction. But 
A marine, that, that does matter, yes. It, it does matter. And then, <laughs> so obviously not making light of it in the slightest, but in one case you're talking about if it had been a real case, Marines killing Marines. And that's horrifying. But here you've got SEAL Team 6. I mean, these are the best of the best of the best of the best. And to me, that's the most striking part of the story. One distinction I think we should make for listeners who may not dorkily follow military phrase in the way we do, because the terms sound the same, special forces, special operations forces, but they're very different. So SEAL Team 6, special operations forces, kind of like Delta Force, like they're the most secretive and elite. Special forces, while still elite, do other kinds of missions. And it's worth just making the distinction between the two. But that to me is the biggest thing about this whole story. You have a group that has only been hailed in pop culture as this like force of Spartan warriors capable of doing anything who may have been A, stealing, and then B, murdering. Think back to, I believe it was in 2015, the New York Times put out a really big story about a lot of potential misbehavior by the SEALs in Afghanistan, SEAL Team 6 in particular. Uh, there were allegations of extrajudicial killings, of, um, you know, internal hazing, a, a lot of things that, according to the story itself, were investigated and somewhat dismissed or handled, inter- handled internally uh, within the SEAL community. And that's always been something of their reputation. They are the best of the best, but they're also kind of the Hollywood bad boys of the special operations community that if something goes wrong, they will cover it up and handle it inside. Whether or not that's a really a fair way to characterize the SEALs, I think is you know, probably debatable. But that's the reputation, and had that reputation has grown considerably over the last several years as incidents like this have come out. Can, can I ask a question? Mm-hmm. How many... Innocent people have SEAL Team 6 and Delta Force um, killed as part of their mission, not going rogue. We don't know, right? Well, this was part of, this is one of the interesting things that was part of the time story of, you know, allegation was made that, uh, you know, a sniper had killed a three-year-old that he found to be threatening or that civilians who were just in the same home as others were killed because they were found threatening. Those stories emerged a lot in the Iraq and Afghanistan war and not just about the SEAL community. But I, I think the fact in the SEAL community that they are perceived to be the best of the best, that they are so protective of one another and very internally focused. And then also one interesting component is they are they're extremely isolated from the rest of the Navy. Uh, the Army Special Forces community tends to you know, go in and out of that community or be, or be deployed or um, part of different parts of the Army organization together. The SEALs are much more isolated. They are isolated when they start training. They are isolated when they're recruited. They are isolated as they go out and deploy. You don't see them integrating a lot with the rest of the military in a lot of ways. They are extremely internally focused. The SEALs, when we think about movies like Zero Dark Thirty, the way they're shown in that movie is actually very accurate. They are typically kind of burly guys, always bearded. They are given freedoms. No other members of the military are given. For instance, they could do missions in plain clothes. None of them wear their names on their uniform. None of them wear the American flag. And they're given freedom, they get the best equipment, and they do things that are, you know, Lauren, to your point, they're legally questionable. I was in Iraq, and there was a SEAL team operating on the same base they happened to be embedded on for that particular story. They lived in their own little compound within the walled compound of the base. You never saw them. You never talked to them. When you saw them, like, in dining hall, they were by themselves. If you saw them on the base, you kept your distance. And they were—the reason I mentioned the story is the unit that I was with, which was conventional military, did a mission in the same town that the SEALs had already hit. And when we got to the town, the people who had been dealt with by the SEALs were visibly bruised. Some of them still had the kind of plastic handcuffs that are used by the military to keep a person, kind of their flex cuffs, to keep a person handcuffed, but not actually handcuffed the way police do. But the signs of what the SEALs had done were pretty clear. And I want to be very clear in not saying that that means all SEALs are murderers, that means all SEALs are brutal. It does mean they have freedom to operate without oversight in a way that the rest of the military doesn't. And when you have that freedom to operate without oversight on a war zone, the freedom to operate without, without oversight can spread to places like Mali, where you're doing secret stuff, to places that are not Iraq, not Afghanistan, not Syria. And that's what bothers me about this story and why I think it, it needs to be amplified and isn't just a, a sort of criminal offense by you know, that involves basically three people. American culture is dominated by reverence for warfighters. Uh, there's, you know, go to any sports game and— uh, Everything is is suffused with pomp and circumstance and reverence for the troops. And our pop culture in particular is dominated by reverence for the people that do the fighting and killing and the crazy dirty work and how brave and proud and uh, amazing that kind of thing is. And, and 
a lot of it is legitimately impressive and important and valuable. But at the same time, we've built up a, a sense that they're superhuman, that they deserve unconditional praise and the work that they do is always noble. And that isn't true. It's This is a country that does a lot of dubious things. And some of the people that we rely on to do those dubious things are the people that are most celebrated in our culture. So going back to points that both of you have made here, the flexibility that the SEALs are given is, they would argue, and many others would argue, on purpose, that they would not be as successful in the missions that they're pursuing without that kind of flexibility. Like, you know, take the example of them potentially embezzling money in Mali. That, uh, you know, this is a fairly regular thing that units operating the field are given kind of slush funds to some degree to both support themselves, but also to use to support some of the missions that they're doing, give to sources, et cetera. That doesn't work if you have to say, mother, may I, every time you want to use it. Like for them to have the kind of operational flexibility they want, they need to be able to have the ability to spend that and however they see fit. But there's consequences to that if, as in this case, you may have people skimming off the top. Uh, on top of that, you also see in the SEAL community and also in the Special Operations Forces community, far more extensive, well, I don't want to say far more extensive, extensive PTSD TBI or traumatic brain injury, uh, the the scars of the wars of today are, in, I would say, and there's an imbalance of how they're impacting the special operations special operations community with the SEALs in particular. And we have asked a lot of them in terms of deployments, and are not necessarily giving them the kind of support that they need by keeping so much of what they're doing behind closed doors and not being willing to raise this into the public light. And part of what what the SEALs do that. Again, for people who don't track the military nerdily closely, which is important to understand, when we're talking about deployments, it's not that they're going for like a year at a time and then going again two years later. It's that they may go for a month, come back, but then go again the next month, the month after that, the month after that. So theoretically, these guys have done 10, 20, 30 deployments to war zones, and I'm really glad you you flagged that. Zach, to your point, what's interesting is like I'm a closet video game dork, which I admit, like the more violent, the better. It's a good way of working off both work and (laughs) work stress and parental stress. But when you're playing a video game killing people, you're often playing as a Navy SEAL or as a member of Delta Force. And in the kind of in-game story or in movies where it's the same thing, the flip side, no offense, Lauren, to the kind of brave SEALs are like the civilians back somewhere in the Pentagon or in Washington who are, you know, these weenies trying to like prevent them from doing the hard work, the grr kind of work that these men have to do. If you, if you saw the Michael Bay Benghazi movie, it's all that. That's the whole point <laughs> yep. of the movie. Right, and that's sort of which is inaccurate. To but be clear. it's also yeah, it's a crappy movie. But <laughs> it's interesting because it, it sort of delegitimizes the idea of oversight. Right, it's not just that your point. I hundred percent agree with that. Often they do need the ability to move, but it takes the concept of like any kind of check on these guys and makes it not just something to ignore, but something to mock and demean. Uh, so I have a friend who worked in the on the civilian side of the spe- special operations community for years, and something she said regularly is that. Soft guys, special special operations forces guys, need and want to be told no a lot of the time because they are, they will go the extra limit. They will push the boundaries of what is appropriate. They will propose missions that are far outside the realm of what we as a democracy should find appropriate, and they want that oversight to be able to draw them back in. I don't know if that's a universal truth, but I think it's certainly true that absent that, you're going to have. Uh, you know, the the expansion of flexibility is going to go far beyond what is even possible to provide oversight for. I mean, what civilian knew that any of this was going on in Mali who provides regular oversight to the soft community? They probably knew a little bit, but not enough to be able to say, are people embezzling off the top there? Or what's the interpersonal relationships that are going on between these stressed out operators in Mali? Yeah, there's a, there's a kind of neither gods nor monsters approach that we need to take when we talk about soft uh, because in a lot of conventional American politics, they are portrayed as gods in the way that Yohi was describing. In some left-wing circles, most prominently, uh, they're portrayed as monsters, people who constantly aid and abet human rights abuses, and that's what they do, right? They're the uh, true face of American power. And it, it's not really either of those things, right? It's that they're human beings who are being asked to do some dangerous, some important, and some horrible things. And when you don't give those people the proper amounts of oversight and the proper amounts of support when they're done, in the way that Lauren was describing, I can't emphasize enough how much we failed veterans in a lot of cases, that bad things are going to happen. 
And it's not clear that you can predict what all of those bad things are going to be. Like, I don't blame anyone for not anticipating that embezzlement was likely to take place in Mali during that mission, but things like that were always a possibility. And when you don't have a sufficiently robust system for putting those kind of checks on, for saying no in the way that Lauren was just describing, you will get disasters. And I think, yeah, I I agree completely. It's worth noting, obviously, the kind of obvious point, but worth stating and, and emphasizing the vast bulk of the SEAL community are not murderers. The vast bulk are not embezzlers. The vast bulk are people who are doing extraordinarily dangerous things and dying in disproportionate numbers compared to how few of them there actually are. They train, they're impressive to watch for the most part in the field. I mean, they are the best of the best, right? Like that's not sort of a mistaken pop cultural. They are literally that. But there are the drawbacks that come, right? If you teach a person to kill and you make them really, really good at killing, and you send them out again and again and again and again to kill, some number of them, maybe it's two, maybe it's five, maybe it's 10, but some will crack. And some will feel like, I've got all this money, I'm being underpaid. And I heard this when I was in Iraq and Afghanistan from a lot of people in the military, I'm underpaid. I'm being paid $80,000 a year to do this kind of work. And I've got $50,000 in cash lying around, so I'll take 10. You know, who's going to notice? It's all the government's money anyway. You can sort of see how like, for a small minority, you rationalize the stealing. And you can sort of see for like an even smaller minority of that minority, you think, well, this guy's going to blow the whistle, so we're going to stop it. I think one more key point to make is the vast majority of SEALs are not SEAL Team 6, which is actually technically not even the term for SEAL Team 6. It's uh, the NAV, uh, Naval Special Warfare Development Group, uh, DEVGRU, as they're often called. And there are other SEAL teams who are not in the counterterrorism that, space. by the way, is such an anodyne name. Isn't it great? Development Group. DEVGRU. Yeah, I, lo- I, I hear that acronym a lot in military circles. Not acronym, sorry, that abbreviation. And every time I just find it kind of amusing. It's like Development Group sounds like the HR department. <laughs> <laughs> but the other piece of the mythology of SEAL Team 6 is that when it was originally created, there were, you know, theoretically only two SEAL teams. And they created SEAL Team 6 in order to throw off the Soviets about how many teams like this they were actually creating in the wake of uh, the failed rescue of Iranian hostages in the early 80s. So I think the other thing you're going to start seeing is parts of the mythology of the Navy SEALs get stripped away. And missions that were seen as just these enormous successes, now questions start to pop up about them. There was a really interesting article this week in the New York Times that described one of those kind of mythological Navy wins, Navy SEAL wins, which was the freeing of Captain Phillips. This was the Tom Hanks movie a couple of years ago. And what was interesting was he appears to remember that he gave $30,000 in cash that he had on the ship that had been seized to the pirates. And the money disappeared. Nobody knows where it went. When Navy ultimately searched the lifeboat that he had been in, they found guns, they found ammo, they found cell phones, they found radios, but they didn't find the money, which raised the obvious question of, did the SEALs who had helped conduct the mission steal the money? They went so far, the NCIS people as to give the SEALs polygraph tests about the money, but couldn't prove it. There's no sign, we don't know yet if the money was stolen, if it was stolen by them. But it's interesting that this case, which was so well-known, a movie was made about it, may have had this kind of dark undercurrent of misdeeds by the Navy SEAL community. And that's, I think, going to be an interesting thing going forward. I feel like there'll be the one track, and Lauren, you've talked about, of sort of the oversight question of like, will anything change about who knows, what they know? And I think there's also the kind of pop culture question of, do we see SEAL Team 6 now in some sort of fundamentally different way because of cases like this? Um, I think we'll stop there. I want to thank both Zach, but especially Lauren, who has not only helped fill in, but both of you have done so while on the sick bed. I think, Zach, you're heading home yeah. immediately. Yep, pretty much. To pass out. The Sudafed clearly worked. So, you know, shout out to Sudafed. <laughs> Sponsor. <laughs> we want to thank, uh, as always, our producer, Jillian Weinberger, our engineer, Peter Leonard, our social media manager, Julie Bogan. If you like what you hear, come send us ideas or things you want to hear more of at worldlyadvox.com. Hit us up on Twitter, hashtag worldly. Find us on Apple Podcasts where you could rate, subscribe, review, say nice things about us because our parents read those. Come find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, any other place you could hear podcasts. We hope you enjoy and we will be back with you not next week because of Thanksgiving, but the week after. Have a great holiday and see you in December. <laughs>